Hello and welcome to Tomorrow, a podcast brought to you by me, Nick Hewer, and Allianz. Throughout the series, we're exploring the global trends that will affect and shape businesses and whole industries in the years and decades to come. We want to discuss how such trends will influence businesses, identify the risks they bring, and the opportunities they present. Today, we're focusing our attention on geopolitics and asking how much impact major political shifts have on UK businesses and industry. What will Donald Trump's aggressive and isolationist rhetoric actually mean in the long term? Does the prospect of China being forced to open its markets present big opportunities for us? And does the recent disintegration of our relationship with Russia cause major concerns for UK businesses? Joining me today are Neil Duane, Global Strategist at Alliance Global Investors, Tracy Skinner, Director of Risk and Insurance at BT, Eric Britton, Managing Director of Fathom Consulting, a city-based economics consultancy, and finally, Andrew Mantilia, Geopolitics Lead at KPMG. So let's turn to you, Neil, first of all. As a global strategist, what are the biggest two or three important shifts, most important shifts in world politics right now? Well, I think it's a, it's a very good question. And I think what we have been struggling with since the election of President Trump and the Brexit referendum decision has been really to understand how uh, economies, policies and industries and regulations would, would change. And I think up until recently, we haven't seen any change. We certainly have had made, made no progress on Brexit. So it's been very hard for companies and for investors to really recalibrate what risks they're taking that they may not wish to choose to take or which ones that they wish to change. I think clearly what, what we've seen so far in 2018 has been President Trump starting to deliver on his trade rhetoric to make America great again. Um, but I think we're still really waiting to see how this unfolds legislatively. And so whilst there is a lot of rhetoric about it, I don't think many of us at a corporate or an investment level are able to change our views dramatically, uh, given what we know so far is actually going to um, uh, unfold. And that's the same for the UK in um, with Brexit as well. Thank you. Andrew, what do you feel? It's very difficult in, in today's news cycle to determine what actually is important and matters to your business because so much is fed by the drama and so much of the information we see are things that are so far flung from actually impacting UK businesses that it's, it's difficult to prioritize what we should focus on in our own internal strategies to help drive our businesses forward. And it's a bit alarming seeing how government is reacting towards the technological advances. If anyone saw the Zuckerberg hearings a few weeks ago in the U.S., the the one thing that concerned us is that the government has a very lack of understanding of the technology itself. So pushing Zuckerberg on cornering him to say, would you like to know, would you like the world to know what hotel you're staying in tonight? And the reality is, People choose to post and, and check into hotels. That's what people want to do. And that's the business model that attracts so many users to it. And if the government doesn't even understand the basic concepts of it, it's quite alarming on how they potentially are going to regulate it. Right. Eric? So I think there's two overlapping things there. One, one is about politics. One is about uh, advances in tech and media and so on. I think those are the big uh, uh, adv- changes that have occurred recently. On the political one, uh, I think there's been this uh, shift in sentiment, in mood, 
the, the high watermark, I would say, for the time being of the isolationist, protectionist, strongman politics movement uh, was in the run-up to the French presidential elections. There was a time there where it felt a bit like Marine Le Pen had a shot at winning that. Huh? And, uh, and then Macron came through and won. And it's felt since then like maybe the forces of isolationism, protectionism and so on are on the back foot. They're not. They're not. This is the, the Macron win may lead us to a broad sunlit uplands of uh, the liberal order, etc., being reasserting themselves. But the, the, uh, underneath that, the shift towards isolationism, protectionism, nationalism is still in, in train, and Trump is one aspect. And Marine Le Pen is still a relatively young woman. Absolutely. How about um, Tracy, BT, technology? What are your feelings? I mean, I mirror some of my um, panel speaker here in terms of the pure um, necessity of um, risk identification in this area and trying to predict what's going to happen moving forward in our organisation and in many hundred of countries is very, very difficult indeed. Um, all we can um, do is basically have a very robust risk identification and monitoring process and try and closely align that to the strategy where we can. Um, I guess, um, not to sort of dwell on Brexit too much, but, you know, a case with Brexit would, would, would be really around building, assuming the worst, and, and building um, steps, business continuity plans around the worst happening is, is basically what we can do. Let's open up the whole thing now then. We're talking here about a geopolitical change. Is it a short-term thing, long-term thing? How many years? What do you reckon, Neil? Well, I certainly don't think it's a short-term thing. I think to pick up on something that Eric said, I think there is a change in the in the momentum, the positive momentum behind globalization. Whether we actually head towards deglobalization or unglobalization, or whether we just stop where we are and the, the the benefit of the last twenty or thirty years comes to comes to a halt for a while, I think is something that uh, we need to consider. So, to answer your question, I think this deglobalization threat could um, could be around for the next twenty or thirty years. Um, and I think as we then f filter that in, as I look at it through, th through an investment lens, I think we have to understand that a lot of, the, uh, a lot of the, the investments we're making across the world become more idiosyncratic. The political risk isn't just an emerging market type of risk. There are risks in the UK or there are now risks in the US in terms of how politicians may change policy. And that is something for the last 20 or 30 years you haven't had to do. You've only had to incorporate that risk in emerging markets where you have very less secure democracies and, and less secure um, uh, legislation and, and the rule of law. So I think those are the type of dynamics we're all beginning to have to try and um, fit into our corporate or our investment roles. One thing before I refer to your point about short-term versus long-term is we must be careful to separate isolationism and protectionism because sometimes we blend them as if they're the same thing. They are very different. North Korea is isolated. The United States, make America great again, Neil, that's protectionism. That's protecting U.S. influence and values, which means we have to open up and be a global player, but ignoring institutions like the WTO and the United Nations because the people that voted Trump in feel like those are failing institutions. I'd like to talk about the short term versus long term and, and what we see working with clients and managing geopolitical risk is that waiting and seeing isn't good enough. However, we must be prepared for the long term wait. But our our reaction plan needs to be very quick. 
So we work with an automotive company that has a 10-day get-out-of-South-Korea card in case all heck breaks loose on the Korean peninsula. Now, long-term, we may have to wait. That may not ever happen. It may happen in five years, two months, but then they've got 10 days to react. So I think our reaction time is short, but our wait and see has to be much longer term. Eric, what sort of game is Trump playing? It's a serious economic game, I would say. Isn't it? There's some fun involved in it, obviously, that we can all see. But there's uh, very serious elements too. I think Trump took office on a couple of promises. One, he was going to uh, do a Reagan-style tax cut, which he's done, and that that's going to unlock animal spirits and growth in the States, and there is some evidence that that's happening right now. And two, he's going to take aggressive action, particularly with respect to China, in terms of the trade uh, relationship between those two countries. And scroll back a bit. Uh, I'm an economist. I think trade is good. I think more trade is better, almost without caveat. But there are some caveats. So he, his, his pitch when he came into office was, we've been losing this relationship, the US with respect to China, for 20 years, since, certainly since China joined the WTO in 2001. And uh, the time for that is over. We now have to change the dynamics of this picture and stop losing. I can make a better deal with China. That was his pitch to the market. And the, part of the deal is I'm going to th- at least threaten tariffs on China. Uh, Remember that uh, the US imports from China last year, $130 billion worth of goods and services. Um, And uh, China, uh, uh, sorry, US imports from China, $530 billion and exports to China, $130 billion. The delta, the difference is $400 billion in favour of China. China is exporting far, far more to the US than the US is to China. So what? So if I threaten to put tariffs on China's exports to the US, um, it's a big threat. It's a much bigger threat than China can threaten back at me. He knows that, the Chinese know that, everybody else knows that. The purpose is not necessarily to levy those tariffs. It might work out that way. The purpose is really to persuade China to do something different, to behave differently. And if it works, it works now in the threat phase before the tariffs Mm. have been implemented. He's brought that sort of way of doing business out of his real estate business, I guess, which right. is sort of um, superior pressure, whatever he... Right. What does he call it again? This sort of policy of extreme pressure. Yes. In other words, yeah. you know, you, I'm you take it right to the brink. What I was just going to say about the, the, the short-term risk, I think uh, something that we have all been... Um, wrestling with in, in business as well as in, in the markets has been that these risks are binary. They either happen or they don't. And so whilst you can have your scenarios and your modelling and your, your get out of get out of jail 10 day plans, it's it's actually working out when uh, when you actually need to, to implement them. And I think that's where President Trump has changed the game a little in it this year. Nothing happened last year. It's all happening this year. And I think everyone is now beginning to think about the fact that they that the planning has to maybe go to a more advanced stage because the the sort of polarity of these decisions is is now much more clear than maybe it was in the in the past. Mm. Do some business businesses perhaps uh, panic prematurely about these things? What do you think, Tracy? I think it's quite easy to do that. There's so much um, to worry about these days. Um, but I, I think it is about having, um, you know, a very um, strong, robust process 
um, about involving the right people so that everyone within um, the organisation that needs to be involved is involved and you know and really having a plan for um, you know the worst case and making sure that that is tested on a regular basis um, and and uh, is likely to be effective but again it's it's extremely difficult to anticipate in terms of will it will this happen will that happen what will be the direction of travel before the Berlin Wall came down, you know, I always felt there was sort of a bit of um, you know common sense going on. There was a red phone in the Kremlin. Right. There was a red phone in Washington, and they talked to each other. And I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, and actually I wasn't that worried about it because I thought sensible people were running it. Now it's coming at you from every direction. What do you think, Neil? Yes, I, 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 would, I would agree with that, but I think the, the headlines and the frequency doesn't alter the fact that I think the world underneath it spins a lot more slowly than, than we all remember. And I think the, the key from the way I look at it as an investor with with the companies I look at is because they have gone global, the key for them is not the headlines. It's whether they think anything is going to change legislatively that would affect the business model that they have. And I think where the politics at the moment has confluenced, I think, with the, the issue around global trade is people who are citizens are saying we have lost and therefore the fact that you know apple makes all the phones in in asia and only the ip is kept in silicon valley is no longer acceptable when there are people in wisconsin and minnesota who 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 feel that they're, they're underemployed or could be more gainfully employed and i think that's the dynamic as each country every country has its own challenge in that respect to reflect the arrival of technology and the arrival of companies like amazon and all the disruption that we have seen so i think that every country almost has its own set of challenges there isn't a european challenge or an american challenge every 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 country has its own discrete set of opportunities and and threats from this environment andrew what a great opportunity for uk business where yes you've got brexit which we're not talking about today which is a um not necessarily, but a distraction from people's priorities and minds. While the U.S. is going to town on a trade war that's not quite a trade war with China, and then be able to separate itself a bit from the U.S. afterwards and see if the U.S. actually works, or if it doesn't work, say, well, that was the U.S., we're the U.K., hi, we're happy to make a deal. So they kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, Secondly, I I think with Donald Trump, he wants to negotiate in the middle, but if you make the middle so far over towards your side, then you end up winning. So if a wall ends up being three quarters of what you wanted, then that's still a win. Um, On North Korea, it's an interesting topic because China controls North Korea and they can use that as a chip in negotiating. So they can get benefits on trade. And Trump's admitted to this. He'll give him – Trump will give China room on trade if they clamp down on North Korea. And China doesn't really care. They just want to get the best trade deal. Um, Lastly, to Tracy's point on – Sort of testing and scenario planning. And we just published a report that's, that's titled the CEO as the chief geopolitical officer. And in every meeting we're ever in, we're, we're pushing cl- uh, clients to really stress test their business. So not just horizon scanning, but actually stress testing. So if, if everything goes worst case scenario in, in X geopolitical situation, there's a game plan. So that, again, that long term, we're not just waiting and seeing, we're waiting to then implement our plan either way. And so, so a lot of what we, we do is talk about four different situations. So the likely situation, uh, um, a credible alternative, unlikely and worst case scenario. And all businesses in all cases should at least have a, a, a short term plan for all four of those scenarios. And it doesn't require you know, years and years of work. It's something that if you just focus a few days on it, you can come up with a plan so that 
you have you you buy yourself time in the unfortunate event that something really terrible happens. Can we just spend a few seconds here, sort of dealing with deglobalization or unglobalization, just in a little bit more detail? I think you came up with the unglobalization name, Neil. Yes, I mean, I I think there's a a phenomenon uh, which one, you know, uh, certainly inside the Brexit debate was positioned as anti-immigration. But I think it really was the fact that people felt the world was passing them by and they have taken for granted the cheap cars and the cheap washing machines and everything else that globalisation has provided because they've not seen a pay rise. And so I think when I combine that underlying feeling with the fact that as the millennial becomes the key consumer going forwards and they are interested in where their product has come from, is it sustainable, and they want to understand the heritage and everything else, I think there will be a natural move both politically and socially to have maybe more local local produce and that type of area. And so therefore, um, I think this is something, certainly from an investment perspective, we give quite a lot of thought to now because I think the moment the consumer is moving in this direction, then, you know, just to pick an easy example from a UK perspective, then someone like a Tesco's is going to realise that it needs to source more English and Scottish strawberries rather than New Zealand strawberries. And therefore, that's what the consumer is going to want, so they will make it happen. And I think that's one of the things as investors we have to understand where the trend is changing. For sure. And certainly, I think in respect of technology and social media, it's just made the whole journey from A to B just you know far faster than it ever used to be in years gone by. So information and is exchanged so quickly today in respect of you know some of the things that you were talking about there. It's just you know it's it's really so fast. Let's just focus for a second before moving on to the insurance industry. U.S. and China. Eric, you spent a lot of time studying this and indeed popping off to China. So, is there a smart strategy behind Trump's tactics, do you think? And what's the best outcome? So, the best outcome is an outcome where China uh, changes its behaviour with respect to people who are trying to export there or invest there. So China would say, and rightly, that they're they're not preventing anybody from exporting, uh, for example, the things that we're good at, financial services or intellectual property products, to China. They'll they'll allow us to do that, fine. Will we want to do it is another question. And, And the sort of things that stop us from wanting to do it are if you want to set up a financial services firm in China, for example, if if one of the people around this table wanted to do that, uh, there are strings attached to that. And the strings are, uh, you will typically have to team up with a local provider that will be a state-owned enterprise, and you will have to have a member of the party on the board of that combined enterprise. And there are obvious risks that attend that. And it almost makes it impossible for people to enter that market meaningfully. Something similar in intellectual property. You want to export intellectual property to China? Well, you're going to have to accept that they're going to take a lot of that, if not all of it, and apply it to their own. And the the protection of that is very, very poor. Uh, We want them to change their behaviour. Trump wants them to change their behaviour. If they were to, that's a brilliant outcome, not just for the US, but also for the UK and other advanced economies for the exact reasons that were alluded to before. Tracy, does this ring true from BT's experience? I think certainly so in terms of um, where we um, have developed... um, you know, business and we require support um, from financial services, um, it's quite clear that we can't get that from our usual provider in the UK. And our usual provider in the UK has had to have some local alliance, as was said around the table, in order to provide that. And, um, you know, that, that, that has been the way. And uh, I guess what I've seen over the years, it's been incredibly slow in developing that, you know, 
that relationship. It's taken a long, long time. Uh, what I would, I think, what I would add to the debate, I think it's the, it's not necessarily what President Trump is actually trying to achieve. It's, I think, potentially the time frame he thinks he can achieve it in. I think the the challenge is he's asking the American consumer to pretty much forego um, about a fifth of everything they spend um, because it cannot be produced anywhere else. You know, the, the the deficits that that Eric was talking about are so large that there is no other producer who can fill that gap that would be more acceptable to uh, particularly Minnesota or Wisconsin or Texas they you know they don't have the capacity and obviously from China's perspective it's not their fault that after 30 years they happen to be a provider of a lot of the things the Americans wish to buy the complication I think for many of us at the investment and the corporate level is you know a lot of a lot of all the things that we would take from from BT here in the UK is manufactured in about 20 different places and assembled somewhere and so if you suddenly say, well, you've got to take the UK piece out or you've got to take the French piece out or the German piece out, you suddenly find you don't have a working piece of equipment. And so I think for companies and for the global economy at large, globalization has fragmented, arguably made more efficient and more cost competitive many of the products we all use, but that you can't disaggregate them and say, right, we're only going to buy from all the, our sort of routers from Argentina, because they may make a bit of it, but they don't make all of it. So it's not a solution. And so I think it's the pace that he's putting on this. The Chinese are probably sitting there going, you can squeeze the balloon as much as you like, but the air will just disappear somewhere else. You, know, it's not, yeah. you, you cannot move the air out of the balloon in a, in a way that will satisfy him from an American, make America great perspective. Andrew? I love what Tracy said about insurance and how investment in aid and sustainable development goals then creates opportunity for all kinds of insurance products. And, um, you know, we saw it. I was, before I moved back to the UK, a few months ago, I was based in Kenya for the last two years for KPMG. And we focused heavily on insurance where it's in the low single digits of penetration and primarily just automotive. But you're talking about a, a class, a middle class that is going nowhere but up. They're getting better jobs. It's growing at double digits. And it's only a matter of time before people are buying life insurance products, all kinds of innovative um, protection on, on investment of development of real estate. Um, what a good opportunity for someone like an insurance company to take advantage of, of the development across society. Let's talk a little bit about insurance and broking, I guess. Neil, what do all these changes mean for that great and important industry? Well, I think the, uh, the the challenge of all the risks geopolitically and uh, and, and at a technology and and, and, and industrial is is to sil- talk to your clients about where they feel most vulnerable to those those risks. I often think from a corporate of the size of of BT, it's the actually the legislation and the political risks. They want to know that the rule of English law or similar are going to remain in place because otherwise you cannot make investments in some of the emerging markets if the rules are going to change as we see regularly in places like like Africa. So I think some type of certainty of fiscal and and, and legislation is the type of area where I would as a corporate be thinking uh, how can I how can I handle that risk and how can I look to the insurance industry to try and uh, on a portfolio basis give me a better uh, a better way of taking those risks for the returns that I think I can I can generate. Tracy you're nodding uh, in agreement. It's a conversation we've been having for a number of years with the insurance market in terms of how can we move away from our, you know, our reliance, um, not only BT, but all organisations' um, reliance on physical assets versus the non-tangible um, is shifting all the time. And yet the prime insurance response is driven around 
impacts to physical assets. But I think, you know, I have heard a change of mood. I think the insurance market has handled cyber risk extremely well um, and extremely quickly in the time frame compared to, you know, other changes. And I think we just need to continue to drive the conversation about have a look at our risk register, top 10 risks, what in, what insurance response is there across those. And at the moment, um, it's certainly less than half. So the more we can do to stretch that conversation around what impacts us is, is fantastic. Just from our perspective, you know, three things is appoint a geopolitical officer. It could be the chief exec himself or herself, or it could be uh, someone at the other C-seat level, but certainly towards the top, um, conducting a geopolitical stress test, something that's beyond just horizon scanning. And then thirdly is around um, implementing a geopolitical forecasting monitoring solution so that it's not just about monitoring the news, but actually having plans in place that are looking at what might happen and then What's your what's your day one day plan that you need to do on the first day after a, an incident changes? Tracy, a global business like BT has got to constantly assess risk worldwide. How do you try and mitigate the major risks? It's really about having a very robust program in place in terms of um, risk identification, risk awareness, and mitigation. Um, it's it's about um, you know having very regular reviews. Um, involving as wide an audience as we can to get the the most global view and and getting the right people around the table consistently um, in order to um, you know discuss engage and make sure that we are concentrating um, on the things that matter to BT and more difficult is to really align um, everything that we see and you touched on this earlier it's got to align with the strategy because you can't have a strategy over here and a risk mapping exercise over here that don't talk to each other. So it's incredibly important that the two work together. I want to look at Russia. You've talked about China and the US. Where's Russia in all this? Are they important? Well, I, I suppose if I start, I, I personally feel that, the, um, that, that, their, that their threat is being overplayed. But I suppose I see Russia as part of a slightly different story, which I think is arguably the most pressing risk outside potentially what President Trump may may go to with trade, which is the geopolitical risks around the Middle East and therefore the oil price. You know, a higher oil price is a tax on the global economy. It's a tax on our consumption. And Russia would benefit from a higher oil price because they're one of the largest exporters of, of, of oil and gas. So that's where I see Russia fitting in more, more compellingly. Yes. Yeah. Russia economically to the West is already sanctioned so much that from a business perspective, it doesn't really make much of a significant difference to your day-to-day operations at the moment. I mean, if it opened up and settled up, it'd create positive opportunities for you to go into Russia. But the reality is it's it's so regulated uh, and separated from business except for the energy side of it that it doesn't pose too much of a threat. But what is a very big threat is the technology war that's happening. So there's probably not going to be nuclear missiles flying over Europe landing in Texas. But there certainly is going to be cyber attacks, as we saw in the recent U.S. election, well, not so recent in the U.S. elections. And um, sort of three things that I think Russia, from a U.K. business perspective, is a threat is an accident. So we're on opposing sides, although not directly, in Syria. And God forbid something happens by accident and then all of a sudden overreaction happens. And then who, who knows what could happen. Um, secondly, as I mentioned, the global technology war. and then And then thirdly, is around Iran 
and how it is a bit scary to see Iran and Russia on the same side in Syria and how Iran opens up over the next five or so years is going to be very interesting. Again, creating massive opportunities for UK businesses potentially because it is a big untapped market. And if the UK can all of a sudden fly in and out as they're increasingly able to do, what a great opportunity for all kinds of UK businesses as they're looking to make up for losses in Europe. The Middle East, Israel, Israel, Iran. Indeed. Uh, the, the conversation about Israel and Iran obviously can extend well beyond this uh, this discussion. Are there risks there? Of course there are, and they are colossal, and uh, they always have been. You're right to allude to the oil price shocks of the 70s and the 80s. There is a risk that oil prices will go north of $100 uh, if something were to bad were to happen in Syria or elsewhere in the Middle East. Uh, uh, and that risk is always there. It's like the, the analogy is, uh, if you're drunk, don't be walking along the side of a cliff edge in a storm. I'm not saying you're going to fall over, but there's always a risk that you are. And uh, the, the, the Middle East is, is, is in that kind of risk environment now as it has been for a long period of time. And th there's always a risk it falls over the edge. And if, the, if it does, it's bad for the global economy. Just on Russia, quickly, uh, the Russian economy, as has been alluded to, outside of oil is absolutely tiny. It's, it's just worth bearing that in mind. So now we've got Putin in power in Russia. Um, he's in charge of an economy that has nothing to it, essentially, except oil. Um, and uh, typically, when you're in that in environment, you feel threatened by all, on all parts because can you sustain your military? Can you sustain your position in power, etc., etc.? Typically, the response to having a failing... Uh, economy or a, a, a too small domestic economy to support your ambitions is to distract everybody by engaging in foreign uh, interventions. Let's turn to Andrew. Andrew, how radically different will the world economy look in, say, 20 years' time? Peering into your crystal ball, what do you see? In how many years' time? 20. You can make it 30 if you want. Wow. Um, I think certainly the technology companies aren't going anywhere. And... Uh, if governments are going to increasingly become influential in how they succeed or fail. So if they regulate them appropriately, then I think you'll see an increase in the overall standard of living and access to information across the world because they can protect against the so-called fake news, but at the same time not limiting innovation. But there's a serious risk that they go into it either uneducated or overregulated and then actually hurt technological innovation and then open the door to places like China and Russia to then take advantage of that. And so the, the IP war and the technology war between China and the US to me is the most fascinating thing to watch out for over the last 20 years because the trade war of hard products has already been lost. As Trump says, China is so much bigger than anybody else by a country mile. But on IP and artificial intelligence and high-end strategic thinking, the war has not yet been won. And who comes out on top? The U.S., the West, China is going to be really, really fascinating to see over the next 20 years. Right. Yeah, so I, I feel very uh, uh, excited and anxious at the same time about the 20-year horizon for the global economy. Excited because of the, the, the things that have just been pointed out about uh, technology companies and the prospects for growth there, which are huge. The prospects for that transforming our lives in really beneficial ways are huge, AI and all the rest of it. I think if you think back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, about 1830, thereabouts to date, uh, we've, we're barely at the beginning 
Uh, if that if th- if this comes through, we're barely at the beginning, and uh, uh, that's true. And in a long perspective, that's true. But there are huge risks, economic risks. Never mind the geopolitical ones. The one we haven't talked about around this table yet that stands out to me is debt. Is to do with debt. The levels of debt in the global economy are colossal uh, within economies and cross-border to levels that we've not seen except after global wars, after World War. So World War I, World War II. 1921, Keynes, the greatest of, of my uh, number, um, wrote a piece called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, where he identified the cross-border debt burden between various different countries as being the thing that will lead us to war again. In 1921, he wrote that. He spent the next 15 years trying to persuade everyone it was true. It was true. Nobody believed him. And uh, we are at the same debt levels now, uh, globally, as we were then as, in, as a share of GDP. Uh, so... Dealing with that, finding a way to deal with that accumulation of debt is the principal macroeconomic challenge, I think, for people like me for the next 20 years. Anybody else? I think we all think that, you know, we all hope, don't we, secretly when we go home at night, this will all go away and everything will be... Um, the same for the next 30 years and I think for sure that's not going to be the case I think we've got to be prepared to have a different conversation, Um, change will happen, Um, I think our reliance on technology is going to increase and I think that is a concern when you take that in combination with the cyber threat in terms of the capability of a major cyber issue to impact us in terms of um, our everyday operations, in terms of what we all do um, is significant India and Indonesia are just bigger to work out that there's a rule book out there it's called China you've got to sort of try and do it in your own in your own way and so I, from an investment lens we have a theme called the rise of Asia we think this is where the future growth of the world is going to come from but alongside that my other three panelists have have definitely touched on it but again I'd parse it slightly differently it's the world of disruption in your time frame of 20 or 30 years we may not need oil but we will need better solar, better wind or a better battery than currently Tesla uh, offer us. But we think there is a lot of innovation. There's a lot of investment still to come. And I think to be cautious of the next 20, 30 years would be, I think, to be bearish of the human spirit. And certainly at Alliance Global Investors, we think we can solve these problems, even if quite a lot of the problems are also, unfortunately, self-made. So, you know, we've got to be a bit more honest with ourselves that we've lived beyond our means, we've borrowed beyond our means, and we've now got to get get rich by getting fit and, and uh, and, and moving forwards with the innovation and the technology that we were hearing about earlier. A beautiful roundup. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you so much. So that brings this episode to an end, but please do subscribe to the series through your podcast app. That way you'll be sure of never missing an episode and we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review too. We'll be back to explore another major global trend in the next episode of Tomorrow. In the meantime, from me, Nick Hewer, it's goodbye. <laughs>